<laughs> we decided to launch the Autistic Culture Podcast, which is not therapy tools and techniques and things like that, which there's lots of, and they're great. And I listen to all of them, but instead it's a celebration of autistic culture. And I describe it like the way I would celebrate entrepreneurial culture or Italian American culture. Like it's just a celebration of buttered noodles and Star Trek and all the things autistic people have helped bring and invent in the world. Welcome back to the Joy, Color, Impact, and Dogs podcast. Although today's episode, it's more like Joy, Color, Impact, and Cats. So maybe this one's for all you cat people out there. <laughs> Today, I'm really excited to bring to you another Visionaries episode. And this time we are chatting with Angela Loria. For those of you guys who have never heard of or never met or don't know Angela, she is an OG of the online entrepreneurship world. I think I first discovered her in, I don't know, maybe like 2016. But one of the reasons I really wanted to get in touch with her and invite her into this conversation is because of something she said. And I don't know if it was in an email or a blog or where, but it had a huge impact on me. It helped me write my first book, well, my first non-photography book, <laughs> and get it done and out the door in time to present it at Global Pet Expo where I was speaking. And it stuck with me. I've never forgotten it. So you'll learn more about that in this episode as I discuss it with Angela. The other thing that's really cool, and I'll tell you more about Angela in a second, but the other thing that's really cool is I just got back from Washington, D.C. not that long ago, and I actually had a chance to meet Angela in person. And you know those people you meet in real life and you just cannot believe you've not known them your whole life? <laughs> That's Angela for me. We had a great time. We drank cocktails with a view of, you know, the White House and chatted and chatted. And it was just so amazing. She took me to a really cool museum of words, which is so on brand for someone who is a publisher. And so I just have so much love and so much respect for, for this woman. And I'm really, really excited to bring her to you because what she's doing in the world is powerful and important. And she's got a great mission. She's really living into her why. And we really bond on some important issues, especially when it comes to inclusivity and how to change this online space for the better. Now for her official bio, Dr. Angela Loria is an author, podcaster, speaker, and autistic advocate helping leaders and teams improve mixed neurotype communication and unlock the power of neurodiversity at work. As a late diagnosed autistic, she has drawn on her lifelong special interest in nonfiction to help almost 2,000 entrepreneurs write, publish, and promote their books, and she's been doing it since 1994. Her clients have been responsible for over 10 million books read and 100 million in cumulative revenue. After 19 years as a ghostwriter for high-tech VC-funded companies, Dr. Angela Loria founded Difference Press and created the Author Incubator, the world's most successful program for writing and publishing exceptional expert books. The Author Incubator was named Coaching Program of the Year, and Dr. Angela was named one of Entrepreneur Magazine's top 10 most inspiring entrepreneurs to watch, one of only two women on the list. 
She was awarded the title of Mentor of the Year by the Stevie Awards. Her company has been ranked as high as number 275 on the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies and number 60 on Entrepreneur Magazine's Entrepreneur 360. So without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with this amazing, delightful, hilarious, really, really cool gal. Angela, hi. Hello. (laughs) Okay, I'm so excited for this conversation for a lot of reasons, but I just have to start by saying you and I really sparked off a friendship when I was sat on Scrub Island texting you about my impending trip to Necker, where you've obviously been. And I was having flashbacks of the mosquitoes on Scrub Island, which sounds a lot more romantic than it actually is. And then the power went out and the torrential hurricane rain came. It was madness. So um, yeah, that's a really nice way to to start a friendship, I think. And I'm really excited that you are joining me here on these visionary sessions because I've really admired what you do for quite a long time. And to give people a little bit of a sort of backstory for me entering your world, I wrote a book, actually it's here. Million Dollar Dog Brands back in 2016. And I researched it for like two years and had to write it. I promised to release it at this uh, event I was speaking at. Still hadn't written it, still hadn't written it, still hadn't written it. And finally was like, oh God, I have to like submit this in like four weeks or I will not have it at this event. And during that whole period of trying to get myself going, I found a little nugget from you that completely helped me get it going. This is how and when I discovered you. And basically your sort of message was just write your book for one person, write the book like you're writing to a single person. And when I read that, I was like, I can do that. Okay, let's go. And it got so much more simple. So tell us a little bit about books. And if you were writing a, an email, you would not have writer's block, like, especially if you were responding. So like one of the things that I do with people who come to write a book with me is we'll turn a chapter. Once we've outlined the chapters, we'll turn a chapter into basically an interview. Mm-hmm. So we'll write 10 questions and we've already done an ideal reader profile. And then it's like, okay, you're just answering this for Susie. Susie just asked you, what's the number one Go. most important? thing you need to know, you're going to have a response. And so that whether, and for some people it's speaking, like this is another mind blow. When you're stuck writing a book, a chapter is 15 minutes of talking. Amazing. It's 15 minutes. So if I give you a topic, can you talk? I mean, God knows you and I have talked. Oh my God. Could we? Color yellow. Right. So if I'm like, just talk to Susie about the color yellow for 15 minutes, we can easily write a chapter on yellow. Absolutely. 15 minutes is nothing. So that's like when you realize, oh, a chapter is just talking for 15 minutes. What are 10 questions that you would have a one minute answer to? That's pretty close to a chapter. That's amazing. And here's what an editor's awesome for. An editor's awesome for helping with transitions, flow, helping you figure out where you need to add more storytelling. I was just going to say, please add a story in here. (laughs) 
Can I hear where your logic maybe went off? Maybe you were writing one chapter on a Tuesday, another on a Thursday, and there you say the opposite thing, which I've done. Like say one thing in one chapter, another thing in another, sometimes it's in the same chapter. <laughs> and an editor can catch that stuff, but don't edit yourself as you're writing. Just talk for yeah. 15 minutes. It's for me, for most of our authors, and we have a uh, like a writing test that we do. But for most people, it's 90 minutes to write a chapter. 15 minutes if you can talk it. I can't. I can talk to you, but I cannot talk my book. I don't know. It just sounds not like my voice. I'd rather write, but 90 minutes to write a chapter is fine. I write every morning for an hour. So I mean, I love that. everybody does, but still there's a way if your book is 10 chapters, there is a way we can plan out 10 90 minute writing sessions. It totally. will not. So I love, that. I love that you found that. That actually comes from, uh, let's get saucy. I'll get a little saucy. I was having an affair with a married man. I had a- Oh, we're going there. Okay. Mm -hmm. I had a long period of where I only like to date married people. Uh Um, I was holding out hope for a relationship that didn't happen. So I didn't want to get too attached. Mm -hmm. And so I was dating this married guy and he gave me the book from Rilke, which is called Letters to a Young Poet. And- I like, I remember, I thought it was like the most romantic gift. I'm not sure why, but it ended up that book changed my life. I'm very happy. I had that brief and torrid affair because (laughs) that book, which if you haven't read it, it's free on the internet. Just look up letters to a young poet. It's a, I don't know, 90 page book. It's super short. You can read it in an hour, but it is eight letters between Rilke and a poet and the young poet. So Rilke is a poet. And the young poet went to his same high school and had a very similar family, turn of the century, end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. And this guy has a really fundamental question, which is, I go to the military school you went to. My family's a military family. They want me to be a military officer. I want to be a poet. Could you tell me if these poems are good enough or should I just stick with the safe route? And this correspondence goes back and forth, eight letters back and forth between these two people. I have nothing to do with Austria, the military, (laughs) even being a poet and certainly not the 1800s. And every single letter of this book feels like it's written to me. I'm like, how did you know? Are you reading my diary? How did, and it's clearly not to me, it's to Franz Kafis. Like it is not, it is absolutely not to me, but I dare you to find this book open to any page or just Google letters to a young poet quotes, and you will feel like he's talking to you. So that's the magic of writing to one person. And I bet you've gotten this feedback on your book is people will say, it feels like you were talking just to me. Mm. Yeah, that is the magic, isn't it? And I think more than just the book as well, having permission to use your own voice in a conversational way is something I run into a lot with, you know, branding and copy and that kind of thing. And I think that that desire to be professional, to be thought of as smart, to seem credible definitely gets in the way of people using their own voice. And so I love that you've touched on, like for you, you can't speak it because it doesn't sound like you. And I think that's the feedback I get about my writing is that I can hear you talking. It sounds like you're talking to me. And I think while I don't, talk my books yet although now I probably will um yeah I think that's the trick isn't it is 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 getting that voice in there Sounds okay like not Wikipedia no yes 
Yes. Yeah. If your thesaurus thing words, because not because you've used the same one over and over again, six times, but just to sound smarter, you're not on a good track. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually didn't bring you here to talk about books. I want to talk about a whole load of other things. So welcome to conversations with visionaries. I always like to start with the same question. And that is what is bringing you joy these days? Oh, it's a great question. Oh, it feels like such a stumper. Okay. I have some not great answers to this, but I want to start with the biggest one, which is my relationship. Mm. So I was that not a great answer. I know it is a great answer, but it's a little existential. It's just in such a great place. So like, I can't tell you, I mean, we do, we go to pub trivia and we have net and like, I just did, I'm trying to learn all the counties in England. Oh, good luck. (laughs) I got these puzzles for Christmas and now I have like timed puzzle tests to like get all the counties there. I found your County. Cumbria. Is that you? Uh, Cumbria is just North of me. I'm Lancashire. Okay. I, so And then I put the people, I'm like, oh, this is where Nick lives. This is where this person lives. So, okay. Like, Love it. Like, so good. I in Cumbria. Okay. I'm like, I think that's her. So I'm learning the county. So like, that's fun. But really it's this existential piece in a way. So I was married to my husband. We got divorced in a very like non-dramatic divorce, but very sudden. I describe it like a car accident. Oh, okay. Um, it was like a very quick, sudden doom done boom. And then we got back together in the pandemic, strange turn of events. And over the last couple of years, I've had like major burnout and identity reinvention and really vision reinvention. But when I reinvented myself and I reinvented my vision, it was with my partner And that's the difference. Like before I was this whole incomplete person. He was a whole incomplete person. We met and we like merged our lives, but he had his vision and I had my vision and it was great, but there was also a prenup. Like it was like, we were on separate tracks. People, I mean, loved having my life with him, but separate people. And like the joy that I have now is with this like, like he's my person, like he's my person, like so relaxed in our relationship. So like pub quizzes, puzzles are fun and planning trips is fun and all that stuff. But really it's like an existential joy, not like a, I love rollerblading. (laughs) Is that existential joy, like that true feeling of like partnership and teamwork where you feel like you've got each other and you're not battling against each other? Or where do you think the root is of like this feeling so much more joyful now? Yeah. My vision for my business was very clear there. I went to a lot of workshops. I did the, <laughs> All the vision, thing. vision board, the like word of the year that my vision for my partnership was like, have a nice relationship. I don't know. Have sex go to weddings together, do the healthy stuff, <laughs> do the, yeah, have hard conversation. I don't know. It wasn't integral to my identity, but my success in business came from my vision for my business being integral to my identity. Mm-hmm. My success in my relationship was like, yeah, if this works, it's great. If not, 
I'm going to do something else. Mm-hmm. But I've never thought that about my business. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's tied into my identity. So I feel like one of the big switches I made was shifting my identity to like put that relationship first. I think for a lot of us in the pandemic, like, oh my God, I'm going to be alone. I'm going to die alone. The world is ending. And I was like, wait, what matters if the world is ending is not my business. It's my partnership. And then that changed my vision to our vision. And my vision was like world domination. His (laughs) vision is like a government job and bank holiday weekends. (laughs) And so our vision together is different than anything I would come up with alone or he would come up with alone. I love that. I get that. I so get that. It's different than I thought. And I still, my identity is tied in with my vision of my business, but my husband and our relationship moved up in order of rank, which I never thought I would say. And sounds like I'm talking about some other lady, but then I thought. (laughs) I'm glad you brought this up though, because it's been really interesting over the last year or so. And maybe this is like a post-pandemic thing where you're like, you either shit or get off the pot, right? Where you're like, I'm either in or I'm out. But so many of my friends, friends we have in common, I've watched their relationships really dissolve, crumble, divorces, separations. And in most of these cases, it is a powerful, successful, up, up, up woman leaving her partner. And it's made me feel a little bit sad, actually, for a couple of reasons. One is because I have that natural curiosity of like, is this the fallout of having it all, right? Like, is this the fallout of being so successful in business that you just leave people behind? The other side of that is, did these women settle for partners that were not their people early in life? And now they've evolved into a place where they've realized that they deserve more or they are no longer a fit for each other. You know, like I've just had this like total curiosity. It's very complicated because I, do I not know who I am? Like me without Paul would be working 24 seven, like not out of any bad that like, I fucking love work. Love it. Love my job. Yeah. Yeah. So is that who I am? Am I sacrificing who I am for him? Like, Mm. is that, but like him without me would be playing that weird national lottery savings bond thing that you all have in England. And (laughs) I just learned about this. (laughs) Oh my God. It's like, it's a family joke. It's so weird. That is your investing scheme. And he gets very excited once a month when the bond lottery. And it's like like people who have not heard of this need to look this up because it is the weirdest thing. And I don't, I still don't fully understand it. (laughs) He's really excited. So like, I'm like, what if we did captive insurance? We take out a hundred thousand dollars in profit from the business. Then we put it into an investing arm. Then we pull a loan against the investing arm and we invest the loan. And then we pull out more money from that investment and we set up captive insurance. And he's like, what if we put our money into savings bond and then we won't lose any money but ever small percentage of people will win big you could win 25 dollars in a monthly draw (laughs) and i'm like we're not approaching this the same way we are fundamentally different human beings (laughs) so like did i compromise on who i am 
like I, it's a very interesting question and not one, I think when I got married, and this is my second marriage, even when I got married to my first husband, like, I don't think I could really comprehend things that a pandemic made me comprehend, which was like, at the end of the day, I can have my captive insurance. And, you know, my deal was like $5 million set aside by the time I'm 50. Great. What does that get you if there's a pandemic and you're locked in your house? Like, <laughs> And so suddenly it's like, I'm very goal oriented. That is who I am. But I changed that to my goal being us being happy, us being, and, and happy means a lot of things. And we talked about that, but like us being content. So like making more money or saving more money is less important than it was, but I don't feel like I've compromised, but I could see how someone would mm. have that identity shift. And then you're paired with a partner and you're like, wait, now I've done all these vivid vision workshops and I'm going for world domination and he wants a pint at the pub. Well, now if you can't get on the same page, I do kind of think you should leave. My same page changed, you know, and that mm -hmm. was and I, I think that's like a lot, like I be a boss, babe, go get it. Like we can do anything. Like I agree with that unless I don't. So if that's what you need, it means you're going to outgrow. I would have outgrown. If I didn't change, I would have outgrown every relationship because it's very hard to keep up with me. And I think a lot of the women that we both know that are primary breadwinners, that like you're gonna outgrow someone you met at 20, someone you met at 30, like you're gonna outgrow them because mm -hmm. most people don't have visions this big. Totally. And also I think you've made a really good point about the priority, the prioritization and investment in that relationship, because I mean, it's a cliche, but man, that shit is hard. Like <laughs> being that connected with someone sharing all these major life decisions when there's, you know, people like you and I are like, fine, fuck it. I'll do it by myself. Like if you don't agree with me, then move because <laughs> I'm going to do what I want. Right. Get and then having to step back and be like, <laughs> oh, actually, do I choose to compromise because I don't want to be that person in this moment. I want to have a relationship that is not me being a bulldozer. Like it's yeah, it is hard. And I feel like I couldn't compromise in each moment. Like in each individual moment, like should we buy savings bonds or should we buy captive insurance or so like some crazy finance game? Like, should we do this or should we do that? If I was compromising in each moment, it would feel like a piranha was like ripping apart my flesh every day. <laughs> I had to shift bigger than a holistic level so that now when that happens when we have like different goals it's like in the moment doesn't matter because our big goal is the same so we went to we went house hunting we're moving to england and we went house hunting <laughs> so we went house hunting and it was we it wasn't really house hunting. We had already picked the house. We went to like sign the paperwork on our house. And I love this house. Like I picked it. I love the neighborhood. I love the house. Like this is like, and I really want it. And I could feel that like grabby thing. And we were in the airport lounge before our flight left. And I said, I know your tendency is to be happy when I'm happy. And so I 
I don't want you to pretend you want this house if you're doing it because you know it will make me happy. So we're going there, but we're not signing the paperwork unless it's independently a yes for us. And that conversation, like I could tell really shifted him. Whereas the me before, it's like, I'm the fucking primary breadwinner. I want what I want. I do what I want. <laughs> like be happy. It's a beautiful fucking house. <laughs> you get to live there. I will pay for everything. Yeah. So I, I would have let him go along if he didn't like it in a way that now that doesn't actually work for me. Mm. So even in individual decisions, like if I don't get what I want, I got what I wanted. Cause what I really want is the strength of our relationship, not winning. Whereas I used to want to win. Win, win at all cost. <laughs> oh, getting old with our mm. wisdom. It's so nice, isn't it? Yeah. No idea if this is interesting to anyone, but <laughs> I do think like all vision has to come from clarity on who you are and the fucking news flashes, you keep changing. Mm-hmm. So you like get clarity, but that doesn't mean, you know, my kids are getting older. That's changed me. I've had health issues. That's changed me. Like things are going to, you're going to go spend a week with Richard Branson. That'll change you. Like there's so many experiences that we have that change. And so checking in with what's changed about me, what do I really want is hard when you're on you're on the track. You've got employees, you've got bills, you've got clients, and you can't just be like, whoa, my vision changed. I mean, you can, but it's a little flaky when you've got people in contracts. It's certainly sold to us as flaky, isn't it? That like, we're not allowed to change our mind. We're not allowed to. I, um, Denise and I had this conversation when we chatted um, because a lot of her dreams and visions have changed, will be changing. And, you know, sometimes I feel like presenting that publicly when people have a buy-in on your public image or people are connected to your story and your origin story and your trajectory and your brand and whatever, like feels like so much pressure to change that when you've worked so hard to become known for this one thing or to be connected with this one dream that you've now achieved and everybody's kind of going along for the ride. So I think like that is linear timeline is a problem because Tuesday, if you make someone an offer for a year long mastermind and on Wednesday, you go to therapy and decide you don't want to do it, you can just refund them. But if it's three months later and you've already paid employees and you have bills that you can't just make go away. You can't publicly say, hey, I don't want to do this mastermind <laughs> because they still have nine months left. That wouldn't be fair to them. Yeah. So it's like, it's complicated. There, it it, It's not flaky to change your mind, but it can be flaky to screw people over who are under contract. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, ultimately we do these jobs because we care about people and we want to get them the results that we promised them. Right. So it is, it is complicated. And I think there is a lot of pressure and nuance to those mm. decisions. Um, yeah. But this does lead me into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about because you're the book lady, right? Off the incubator. Mm. And lately you have a new project that has been capturing your attention and adoration. Can you tell us a little bit about autistic culture, where that started and 
what that does for you and what your dreams are for that conversation you're having now. Yeah. So I have had on my to-do list for probably forever. Actually, I've done a few of them, but like I should do a podcast. So my first podcast was called Book Journeys. I interviewed authors about their books. Then I did a podcast called Page Up and it was like techniques for writing your book. And then I did a pod, I have like a secret podcast. And so like I've done podcasts. And I'm like, oh, I should have a podcast. That's a good lead gen tool. That's great lead gen. <laughs> so much and been in that choice. I did not fucking want to do it. And then I I got diagnosed with autism. I'm almost 50. I got diagnosed when I was almost 40 and did some stuff, like went to some support groups, did therapy, whatever. And, you know, have never been in the closet about having autism, but it wasn't central. It wasn't what autistic people would say, a special interest for me. So a lot of times when people get diagnosed with ADHD or autism, you'll see suddenly it's their special interest and they're studying. It wasn't for me. I knew it. I had some tools, read some books, fine. But during the pandemic, I went into autistic burnout, probably for the second time that I didn't know it was autistic burnout the first time it happened to me. And I began to listen to podcasts and resources. And I heard this guy, Matt Lowry, who is the co-host of the Autistic Culture Podcast. I heard him read this story called The Legend of Autistica. And it's like a little kid's book kind of thing on the, it's like an origin story for autistic people. And it was one of those experiences that I'm sure you've had them where I had to like pull over on the side of the road before I got to my destination. It's long. It's like 20 minutes and I had to get to the end. So I was like late to where I was going. (laughs) Who is this guy? I want him to be my best friend. What is this story? I want to publish it. Like what is happening here? And I got on the phone with Matt. I'm like, we're supposed to be best friends. (laughs) Got on the phone. I actually paid him for a session. He's a therapist. So I paid for a session. I'm like, I don't really want a therapy session. I want to be your best friend. Let's do a podcast together. (laughs) And we decided to launch the Autistic Culture Podcast, which is not therapy tools and techniques and things like that, which there's lots of, and they're great. And I listen to all of them, but instead it's a celebration of autistic culture. And I describe it like the way I would celebrate entrepreneurial culture or Italian American culture. Like it's just a celebration of buttered noodles and Star Trek and all the things autistic people have helped bring and invent in the world. And we have so much fun doing it. And this is something since I started my business, I have not done, which is, it is a hobby. What is a hobby? Tell us more. (laughs) Something. Before I started a business, I had hobbies. People have hobbies. I don't know if you know this, listeners, Nick, listeners. It's a hobby and I'm so excited to have a hobby because I work all the time and then I have kids and a partner and friends and work travel and fun travel and friends getting married and and a hobby just seemed like something people with regular nine to five jobs had, like pottery class or something <laughs> for hobbies. It has been the greatest, like, just fun time. It's hard for autistic people to make friends a lot of times 
because we want to do something meaningful and serious. We don't just want to go out drinking. I don't really drink. Like we're not into small talk. Uh And so when Matt and I, like we're both passionate about artistic culture and we decided to do this podcast, it's just a way once a week to hang out with an hour for my new friend. How do you make friends as an adult? Like it's so hard. So like we have a reason to meet every week as much as like, I like you, you and I don't meet every week, but if there's a podcast, we show up and talk about stuff we like. So yes, yeah, so we both threw ads on there. So he has an ad for therapy. I have an ad for writing a book with me, but it's not really a lead gen thing. It just, I'm making it a write-off. Um, so tax deductible, whatever, Riverside subscription. And it is just really been a way for me to like recharge So I do love working with my authors and I get a lot of energy from doing books, but there are aspects of running a business, like, you know, managing employees or writing a standard operating procedures or like, I'm getting sleepy already. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite things. And this is like a little reward that I give myself. And I, there mostly, I think I haven't had a hobby for 10 years because I was busy but I will say one of the weirdest backlash things, and I've not really thought about quitting, but sort of thought about quitting is we use social media to promote our businesses. And then we also use it to like share a lot, like went on a trip to Necker Island. Here's a picture, but I'm sort of promoting my business. It's aspirational, but also I just want to have pictures on Facebook. Mm-hmm. But when I did, when I set up this podcast, I was like, oh, I know how to do a launch. Let me send out emails. Let me make social media graphics. Let me do all the things I would do for a work podcast. And then I like confused my list and my clients thought I was abandoning them. And my (laughs) staff thought I was shutting down my business. I'm like, people, podcasts don't make money. It's not like I, like there's seven people listening to the autistic (laughs) podcast. Like this is not, I'm not, there's no ads, but there seem like they're ads. Cause they're for me and Matt, like there's no, sometimes this, I think to a couple of really important things that you've already touched on. One is this identity piece and what people know us for and how much our identity is connected with our work and our specialty in particular. We fight hard for our niche, right? Right. We search for it. We find our why we dive in deep. We build a authority and rewrite books. And then we want to have a podcast <laughs> And suddenly podcast and make a new friend. Everyone's confused about the original 10 years of authority building. It's funny. Yeah. It is really funny. And I think it probably stops people. Like we, we talk about imposter syndrome. This is almost reverse imposter syndrome. Like I launch a podcast and my list of 200,000 people assume probably making eight, 10 million from that podcast. (laughs) Like she's not going to have time for books now that she's, you know, the Beyonce of autism. Like I'm just just like, so it's like, literally I am suffering from reverse imposter syndrome. I would like to know what that is. It's like, it still makes me not want to show up and have a hobby Mm -hmm. because is it confusing the marketplace? Should I have a separate Facebook profile? I remember my clients asking me this, like, should I have a separate Facebook profile for my personal stuff? 
And I'm like, no, what is your personal stuff? Just post all the time about work. And if you post a personal picture, it doesn't matter. But now I'm like, should I not use my, should I not? Like, oh gosh. (laughs) This is so interesting actually, because, and this is something I'm really passionate about as a brand builder, especially someone who's done a significant amount of research about brands, what makes them work. And you know, from what I've seen, both from my personal experience, from my research, and then obviously marketing theory and what everybody tells you in the textbooks, the stuff that actually works, the stuff that lights on fire, the stuff that looks like an overnight success, even though they already had, you know, eight years in the tank, it so often comes from a place of that pure passion, pure love, um, doing it because you just have to. That energy is such a great igniter of things that go viral, things that blow up. And it's a hard thing to fake, first of all. Mm-hmm. And second of all, it's it, I'm finding it, I, I think especially if you already do have a successful business or that niche or that authority, it's a really hard thing to give yourself permission to do because of what you know about clarity and not wanting to confuse people. But also I think we just get so accustomed to doing things the way we know how to do them. Like you were saying, I'm doing a podcast. I'm going to do a launch for this podcast. So like when I went to name this podcast, I was telling you about this. You know, I have people in my world who are absolute podcast experts, the world leading experts in podcasts and, you know, people who are world leading experts in SEO and keywords, you know, like strategy and launch all the things. And I was chatting it over with several of them, you know, in the WhatsApp group, whatever. I'm thinking of naming, this is what I'm thinking, naming my new podcast. I'm thinking Joy Impact Color and Dogs. (laughs) And I know it's weird, but I kind of like that it's weird. But, like, but what are the keywords? How will exactly. people? And it was this avatar. What's the avatar for this? What are they searching for? What podcasts do they listen to? Do they read magazines? What websites do they go to? Yeah. In their words? If they snap their fingers and have a wish come true, what would it be? I don't know. I'm just fucking calling it joy, impact, color, and dogs because I like those four things. Fuck off. Exactly. Well, I think it speaks to something of like, I know how to do strategy. I know how to do keyword research. I know how to build podcasts that people will actually want to search for with this is not that. (laughs) But I think it's, you know, like I have another podcast I'm building called Rebrand. That's probably a lot more appropriate for exactly what we're talking about. Probably teaches people how to rebrand. You think? Maybe. (laughs) But I think what's really important about this is I almost just changed it to something else because I was like oh my gosh they're so right this is this is a bit stupid like who would do that and why would you do that and actually it was a couple of my friends who reached out privately and were like I saw the feedback you got in the group and I just wanted to say like I love it I love it I love it so much and it was like I just needed that little bit of support of people to reflect back what their experience was to remind me that that's why I'm doing this is because I want to love it. I'm doing this because if I'm going to commit to it long term, I need to be able to talk about all my favorite things. (laughs) And these are my favorite things, right? And that is so non-strategic, but it is coming from a place of passion and love and excitement and interest. And I found in the weeks that I've been planning this and recording these interviews and my own episodes, like it is the most fun thing I have done in so long. And it's been so long since I've given myself permission to just create something that I love because I love it. <laughs> and that just gets sucked right out of us as creators, doesn't it? Like you just, everything becomes strategic and led by keywords and 
Right. And look, I love, I genuinely, I am not lying. I love books. I do. But also I have been working on books since 1994 and largely saying the same thing for 30 years. And so it's like, it is hard to find that like, oh my God, you could write a book in three days. It's all, I mean, you could tell at the beginning, like, I'm excited about the fact you can write a chapter in 15 minutes, but also been around the block 2000 times. So I don't know. I do feel like for me, a big, a big piece of it is like learning something new. And I find it hard to believe that I can learn something new about books at this point. Although I am learning some new stuff with AI. So we have like our four beta clients right now that we're using AI to write their draft manuscript. I wanted to ask you about this because I saw your Facebook post. I'm like, oh, we need to talk about this. Fascinating. So I'm learning a lot and that's fun. I haven't learned anything new in books in so long. And really, I do think this is personality type, I don't know, astrology, science, something. If you have trouble starting a project, but you do really well giving feedback, Um, So I talk a lot about Colby types. So if you are like a low quick start, but really good follow through, or if you're a super high fact finder and it's just hard for you to get the book out because you're just doing a little more research, this moves your book project along. If you're a high quick start, which I am, and I bet you are, I can actually write a book faster on my own than with AI. Interesting. But that's also because I know it's 15 minutes a chapter. It's 90 minutes of writing. It's not that hard. But if it does feel hard for you, the draft that you get, what I found is you need to write it not just chapter by chapter, but paragraph by paragraph. Mm-hmm. So you can generate each paragraph or maybe two to three paragraphs separately. And then you will have a very clear opinion. You'll know exactly what to do with it next. Mm-hmm. So For some people, it moves them along faster because they just can't get it out. Yeah. Um, So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a tool. Um, Oh, the other people that I have found that do really well is ADHD people that like we can get a draft out quickly before you move on to the next topic. Right. Even if it's shitty, that keeps people moving forward. So we haven't published any yet. The four, we just got the manuscripts done, but we were able to do them in about two days. So one day of prep work, writing all the prompts together, and then one day of just spinning out all the content and assembling it. That's and brilliant. then it'll go into like an editing process. So I love that you're jumping straight on this because obviously there's so many questions around AI and what it means for creators like us the future of all of our jobs. And we've had lots of discussions around copywriting and what does that mean? And it's been really interesting being from the pet space because what we found testing it is that it's really great at, here's a bunch of podcast episodes, here's a bunch of email subject lines. But if you ask AI to write about topics relating to animals, you're all over the board. Like it actually, in many cases, doesn't know the difference between an animal and a person. So it will like make suggestions of things that humans should know or do thinking, right. you know, so it's really interesting. It's not quite Your dog yet. should try drinking orange juice. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really <laughs> bizarre. Some of the things that it comes up with. So 
I, I mean, I read the funniest thing. One of my authors writes about fibromyalgia. And last night she messaged me. She's like, I'm, I'm working on my prompts. And my husband was helping me with it. And he typed in, write a paragraph debunking the myth that you can't catch fibromyalgia from eating popcorn. <laughs> She's a fibromyalgia author. And it, however, there is a popular misconception that fibromyalgia can be caught from eating popcorn. The origin of this myth is unclear, but it likely stems from the fact that some people with fibromyalgia have reported experiencing pain and tenderness in the jaw, also known as TMJ disorder. Popcorn kernels can get lodged in the jaw, which can cause discomfort. However, this does not mean eating popcorn can cause fibromyalgia. <laughs> And round and round we go. Sweet baby Jesus. So yeah, I'm not worried about the robots taking my job. Not anytime soon. Not worried. But listen, I wrote my first book when I was 20 on a word processor. And then I moved on to Xyrite. And I remember the day when we got word 3.1. Like mm -hmm. it was incredible. And so there have always been new tools to learn as an author, and it is much easier to write. I mean, I still have authors that will write by hand, but for me, it's much easier to write using, um, you know, whatever Google Docs than writing it out by hand. So I am very happy we have another tool that will help people, especially neurodivergent people, people who maybe have trouble. I have a client with dystonia who can't sit for more than 15 minutes. Um, this is really helping us with her book. So I think just as a tool for people with differences where writing a book has been inaccessible, we'll have access to more wisdom and it will require even more editing. So my job feels very <laughs> at least right now. I am not publishing any books about catching fibromyalgia from popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> it's a win okay yeah. so one of the questions I always have to ask people as well given the name which we've talked about at length is because I don't know this about you I did know this about Denise because I've met and cuddled her dogs but are you a dog person Angela sadly I'm not a dog person You're I'm not dog people I think we can agree to disagree although <laughs> I always know in my heart cats are the superior being cats okay you're a cat person I'm a cat person I believe my husband is a cat oh. um is a Leo but cats come to him in a very Pied Piper children children to the Pied Piper fashion oh um, I have always had cats and I did think about getting an autism therapy dog because they are amazing. Um, my friend Alex Plank, who runs Wrong Planet, which is an autism website, he, I did um, an event with him and he had his autism dog and it was amazing when you start to have a little autistic meltdown, but way before it happens, the dog would like, he like he knew before Alex knew he was about to have a meltdown. And then you can like reset, walk outside, like take a deep breath, go to the bathroom. And then if you're in a meltdown and it's too late, he could say pressure and the dog would like come on top of him. He would lay down and the dog would just put pressure. It's like having a weighted blanket at all times. Amazing. And 
I must get an autism dog. <laughs> They're 40 grand. And then I remember dogs bark. <laughs> it's like very jarring. And then they also need your help and assistance in going to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So the, but you have a litter box, right? But they don't need my help going to the bathroom. I have a litter robot. They go there. The robot does its thing. You just like empty the whole thing once a week. It's very non-dramatic. There's not hot steaming poop in my hand. Which <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, as a dog owner, I can tell you cold poop is much more off-putting to pick up in a bag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now that's even more alarming. <laughs> this is where it all falls down. I will grant you, I do think your dogs like us more than our, like you more than our cats like us. I mean, really? Cats can give a shit, but so I see the power imbalance, but also barking in bathrooms and you have to actually do like, you have to like walk them and care about them. Yeah. They're like a proper dependent. Yeah. It's, it's, it's practice children for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say it's a dependent? That's what it feels like. Cats are fine. We go away for the weekend. They're like, I don't know, leave some water. We're good. (laughs) Totally. Very independent. That is, I have executive functioning challenges. Uh, Autistic people do tend towards cats. It is not a firm part of our culture. We have not done a cats are autistic episode, but (laughs) I think a big part of why is we have executive functioning challenges in general. And I do have trouble feeding myself and going to the bathroom. So doing it for an extra being feels challenging. Mm -hmm. And then the random barking it like throws me off for a long time I um am highly sensitive and I got a great Dane when I was you know 21 as you do when you're a college student just pick up the great Dane puppy (laughs) I love great Dane that would be the kind of dog I would get if I but maybe I shouldn't you're about she was amazing she was amazing but her bark was jarring it was like I find the same thing with my children, actually, because I am very sensitive to noise and I don't love it. But yeah, the bark, the bark with her was intense. But now I have a Frenchie that never barks and she's great. She just never makes noise. It's really great. Except when the male comes. I do love dogs. I just, they're not, I'm not, not good for enough you. for them. I'm not good enough for them. That is really, <laughs> it's really like, good enough. It's just the suited. Yeah. I literally packed to leave for a trip five minutes before I was supposed to leave for the airport. Five minutes after I was supposed to leave. For the <laughs> I just, I'm not good. I'm, I don't deserve a dog. I, I think we need dog. this, um, cats for autistic episode. That's one I want to hear. Yeah, I know. Now I'm like, hmm. I think that needs to be done. Search for sure. Yeah. Okay. That's my answer, but I respect your dogs and I like your podcast name. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Well, it's really interesting kind of back to that identity piece is that I, a lot of people in my world now don't actually know this, but I'm like one of the world leading experts on building pet brands because of my experience, because of my history, because of my book and my research and, and just the work I've been doing for almost 20 years. And so I have this whole side of my entrepreneurship and my authorship and all this stuff, which is all deeply, I'm a on marketing faculty for the Victoria Stillwell Dog Training Academy. So I'm like, there's this whole world of the pet industry that is just present and part of my life. But because I also do stuff over here, 
I don't often talk about it. And what I realized is that, A, I love that part of my life. I'm so passionate about it. It's where my career started. And I find pet entrepreneurs to be just the fucking best. Like they're such great people. I love the relationships I've built there and building brands in the pet space is really fun because it's, you know, there's that instant emotional connection. You can build brands. I was going to say, it's like, it's got a big upside. It does massive. And like most pet printers don't know like the huge advantage they have over people selling something really boring. (laughs) Um, But I started to realize that from an identity standpoint, I felt like I had to be two different people in two different places. And I have multiple businesses in the pet space. I should probably talk about them more often. And I just, I just don't. Cause it's like, Oh, do I talk about the pet thing? Or like the regular thing. And I think, you know, part of this podcast and part of these conversations is just kind of like, like getting rid of the rule book and those multiple identities and just being like, this is who I am. It's part of who I am. And also dogs are like the best conversation starter in the world. (laughs) Like it's something that you, it's polarizing, right? You like them or you hate them, you love them or you don't, you know? And, um, and I think it's a fascinating, like finding out about the (laughs) How cats are autistic, I think is like so interesting, which would never come up without the conversation around dogs. So it is. Yeah. But I think that identity thing is like, I don't, my marketing advice is don't fucking do this. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> totally. But there's also the don't do this unless you've had 20 years of experience yeah. doing this. <laughs> And you know what you're doing slash not doing slash know where your boundaries are for how much time and energy you invest in the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Part. So I talk about that. So there's very specific time boxing with the autistic culture podcast that I do. It's like very compartmentalized. And also I didn't, I should have known the, the cost. I didn't calculate it in advance because I was just so excited about it, but even once I thought through the cost, I was like, oh, I'm like making a new friend and having fun. <laughs> and if that means that I don't close two sales, fine. Cause there also is just like a fun factor and maybe it's not even fun, but when you talk about the, like, should I bring up dog? Should I not bring up dog? Do I bring up pepper? Blah, 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 blah. It's like the, the mental load of that mm-hmm. is really heavy. And weirdly during the pandemic, I became very close friends with Marianne Williamson. And she has obviously a long career in new age spirituality. She's one of the world's foremost experts on A Course in Miracles. She has seven New York Times bestsellers, 14 books, best-selling book of 1994. She's got this vast career as a spiritual keynote speaker. And it's beautiful and interesting. And what she's really interested right now is progressive politics in the U.S. And so all of her experts are like, only talk about new age spirituality because that's going to sell more tickets. You're confusing people. People are going to a new age spirituality conference and maybe they support Trump and maybe they support Biden and they don't want to know who you support you're supposed to be like a spiritual figure. So could you please not talk about the politics? And then she'll be like, hey, I want to do more podcasts. I want to speak at more political events. I think it's really important that someone from the spiritual left has a voice. 
And the political people are like, that's great, but don't talk about anything new age. And I've been uh-huh. with her and she is swarmed by two sets of people. So there are these very nice 60 year old ladies who are like, oh my God, you changed my life. Your quote about, you know, like being myself is like the thing, you know, our, our greatest fear is not that we're inadequate. It's that we're powerful, but beyond measure, I give that to my children framed. It's like these ladies. And then there are 20 year olds, high school students, college students. And they're like, oh my God, are you the political activist, Marianne Williamson? And they've never heard of A Course in Miracles. <laughs> and they love her politics. And everyone, like she had a podcast, like everyone tells her, like, you have to pick one. And she is like, Angela, I am 70 years old. This is who I am. And I am not picking. And I think that was part of what inspired me to just do that. Like, I'm not 70, I'm 50, but having a friend that's 70 and who's that successful who's just like, these experts are going to come in and tell you shit. I'm sure it's right. I'm not doing it. (laughs) I want to talk about politics and I make money as a spiritual speaker. I'm not going to stop making money and I'm not going to stop talking about politics. So there's a, there's a happiness factor too. Like if you're trying to feed your family, don't do this. (laughs) It is not the most efficient way. I would say if you're in the if yep. you're in the beginning of establishing your niche and authority, don't confuse people because right. you'll never do that. Right. I think the other thing that feels really strong and salient here for me, as I was just feeling this as you were saying this, was what happened in all these online communities during the sort of Black Lives Matter awakening of, you know, May 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. And watching so many white people say oh we don't talk about that here like no i mean i love everyone race here i love everyone i don't think it's helpful to talk about race okay yeah and missing the point sister i mean to be fair i was one of those white people who had not invested any time or energy in educating myself and have definitely turned that around since then but even as ignorant as I was then, <laughs> I was like, that's not right. Like, that can't be right. That's not like, we can't segment things like that. And if we don't talk about it here, where do we talk in our safe communities of peers? Like, where do we talk? Like, and again, you know, with watching people, you know, watching protests turn into riots and, oh, well, that's just not the right way to get your message across. I'm like, well, Kneeling you wasn't got? the right way. Marching silently yeah. wasn't the right way. Like, what is the right what way? Recommendations. Yeah, the, like mass no shooting. The right way. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think I think it's really dangerous to kind of yeah set those lines in the sand where it's like you can be this but not that. You can show this part of yourself here but not this. And I think that. I think what we will see in the coming years is a lot more nuance because obviously simple narratives sell, right? Like my husband and I talk about this all the time because he loves history and he loves politics and he is very idealistic and altruistic. And, you know, I'm always like defending human nature where I'm like, yeah, that's great, but people need this and people do that. And they're never going to think this way or do this. And, 
And so we talk a lot about this idea of the simple narrative, which, you know, you must be the queen of, you know, thinking just about I mean, book titles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, build a wall. So good. Makes Take no back control. Sense. That was the Brexit one. Take back Take control. Back control. Yeah. Fucking brilliant. brilliant. Makes no sense. Means nothing. It means nothing. Like mm-hmm. art or that. What was the NHS number on the side of the bus? How yeah, much? Yeah. Dollars yeah. a week. Like not true no and all the dog whistle stuff right the like welfare what is that one um they're taking our jobs meanwhile yeah yeah i'm trying to think of all the list of no lorry drivers like oh the death tax like yeah branding branding isn't it marketing marketing and branding and it's so good so i think that the simple narrative is one of those things where there's people like you and me who like eat, sleep, and breathe it because it's our job to create it. And actually, it's kind of a fun puzzle to solve, isn't it? Of how to say two 10 paragraphs worth of stuff in four words. Like, I feel pretty fucking brilliant when I can come up with a great, a great simple you know, tagline. But but it does go it does go both ways. And I think that, you know, we get back into the earlier conversation around permission to change when you've given yourself a simple narrative. And that's the box that everyone wants to put you in. It does become challenging to be human, grow, expand beyond that. Yeah. And I think that's really my very like nuanced takeaway from the pandemic was like, well, even if this works better to just be only books and that's all I talk about and work 24 seven and have the world domination dream and then I get invited to the right parties and go to the right thing. Like, even if that works, it doesn't work. Like my vision actually didn't work because it was killing me. Like it didn't work for my body. It didn't work for my sensory system. It didn't work for my relationship, clearly. Like it didn't work as a parent. It didn't work as a friend. Like it didn't actually work, even though it worked in the marketplace. So my vision really changed to, I want something smaller, more manageable, that's not world domination, but that's just like, let's have a good 40 years and leave my kid a bit of an inheritance. And it feels like a compromise, like not anymore, but I had to do a lot of like therapy and processing because I'm like, that's not me. I could do anything. Like I was going to take on the world. I got most likely to succeed in high school. Like it felt like giving up or settling. And I'm like, oh no, no, no. This is actually much harder. It's much more complicated. It's much more nuanced. And the alternative doesn't end well. Hmm. So much more sustainable. That was like one of my big words. This is a theme as well. And one of the things I've been sort of playing with and and asking people is this idea of the faster better more culture the faster better more appetites and it sounds like this has kind of been a part of that journey for you of like there's the faster better more side which tells you and not all of that is toxic right some of that is just being ambitious and wanting to have it all and having tremendous energy and excitement about what you're doing and tremendous skill and experience and being great at it which is a self-fulfilling thing and then there's the pieces of it which are toxic 
as you've kind of gone through this experience, what were the bits that you're like, actually, this part of the faster, better, more is something I need to leave behind because this is stealing my happiness or not going to lead me where I want to go or costing me my relationships. What were the pieces that you that you let go of? Or what are the pieces that you still battle with? <clears throat> yeah. As an autistic person, I've always had trouble with like social stuff, interactions, friendships, relationships. I've always challenged, had challenges on the social side. And there for me was a very deep loneliness, like even with a partner, even with friends, even at Necker Island, like with the coolest people, when I got invited finally to the cool kids club, I still felt like the weirdo, the misfit, the odd one out. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a secondary gain to that for me, which is like, oh, going into this, I know people aren't going to like me. I'm going to be the misfit. I'm going to be the odd one out. So let me just cross it off the list and I'll just go back to the hotel and write a book. So when I was, I spent my week on Necker, I wrote a book while I was there. It's a seller. This is it. You should read it. Make them beg to work for you. Nice. Um, Love it. It's uh, totally inspired by and filled with Richard and stories of Necker. And it's one of my best-selling books of all time. And I love doing it, but everyone was doing whatever, I don't know, skinny girls do on beaches with (laughs) billionaires (laughs) Um, billionaires and tortoises and trampolines in the water. Anyway, I was writing a book uh, in the main house upstairs. There's that like little loft space. Mm-hmm. I so cool. desk and wrote a book the whole time. And so I had these tools that were like better than li- like, I wasn't like, wah, wah, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll go eat worms. Like I came up with pretty productive ways of being my misfit self. And I think for me, I do not feel that sense of loneliness or misfit anymore. And by really like asking for the accommodations I need as an autistic person and sharing my autism in a way that like, I never denied it once I had my diagnosis. I was actually very happy to get a diagnosis. I always thought I was fucking weird. But <laughs> now that I, I know what this is, it all makes sense. Um, But it was, and a lot of autistic people feel that way when we get our diagnosis. But like, I didn't think I needed accommodations. But like, I definitely do. Like I have light and sound issues and food issues and texture issues. And I have like executive functioning supports that I definitely need. Like there's so many things I need. And so now instead of like just being frustrated that my team maybe didn't do something exactly the way I said it had to be done, I'm like, here's what routine, here's what happens with routines with me. If I know something's going to happen, my, I can regulate my nervous system. If something happens differently than I expect, I'm out of regulation. I'm dysregulated. Then I end up doing something stupid socially or yelling at you for something. And then you're mad at me. So I have these systems for a reason and we need to find a way to make them happen because that's, what's going to keep me regulated. And it's my business. Now that is not a scalable billion dollar company. (laughs) It's not, it's like taking care of a fragile flower. 
And, you know, obviously I did a whole episode of the Autistic Culture podcast on Steve Jobs, but like Steve Jobs and I share many traits and he did run a billion dollar company and they, it's not nice what people say about him. Mm -hmm. He did not ask for accommodations. He just told everyone to fuck off and I'm going to be the best. And I did that for many years in my career. Like I was always the one who made the most money at companies. So companies would put up with me and then eventually fire me, like usually 18 months in. But I was bringing in so much money, they would keep me. Like Steve Jobs is just the best. So you have to keep me. He also got fired and had to come back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Happened to me many times, like same story. So, but now I'm like, oh, I actually can't grow this that big and put my sensory and medical needs up front. I ended up getting like a hiatal ulcer, um, which is like super unpleasant, hiatal hernia and ulcer and like all this. And I'm like, this isn't going to get better as I get older. Mm -hmm. So I need to build in accommodations. And what that led to was for the first time in my life, me knowing what not being desperately lonely and feeling like a misfit was like. But then that's weird because I'm so used to knowing what being desperately lonely and a misfit is like. I'm like, oh, what is this like? This is weird. Weird. So that is interesting too. And I don't remember your exact question, but I will say like that for me has been the biggest identity shift is seeing places where I was masking, like I'm going to write a book while I'm on Necker Island, Mm. Um, seeing places where I was compensating and trying to do something my system just wasn't designed to do and doing a pretty good job at it, all things being equal, but being able to like drop that line, I think has been like there's been a lot of grief tied to it really mm. surprising way like I literally spent two years grieving yeah because that shit worked for me yeah I mean I made more money I made millions and millions and millions and millions, millions of dollars <laughs> so it wasn't like which is its own oh, reward <laughs> right so yeah it's it's been interesting it's been an interesting journey but I feel really at peace with the vision the new vision. And that is not something I thought I could say even a year ago. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what's next, because I think it's important that, you know, we sort of establish your, that you have this hobby in autistic (laughs) culture and you're not going anywhere with the books. But one of the things I find, and the reason I specifically call this series, you know, visionaries and want to specifically talk to people I've identified as visionaries is I feel like And you've probably had this, you know, even we've talked about this a bit, but multiple times in your career where you get that point where you experience success, what was driving you is no longer driving you. You have to ask what now, because you need a different motivation to go to the next level and the next and the next. So based on where you're at now, all this growth, this expanded vision, what's next for you? Are you in one of those like crossroads moments of like, this was that, and now I'm looking ahead towards towards the next thing. And what does that, what does that look like for you? 
I think part of the crossroads for me is because I get to be an exchange student at 51 or whatever. Um, So moving to England. So my husband got his American citizenship. So now he can leave and still have his citizenship. So before he was a resident, so we could like go spend time in England, but we couldn't really stay there. So my son's going to college. My husband has his citizenship. So it's finally time for me to get my British citizenship, which means we're going to be living in England at least four years while my son is in college, probably longer, but we're like moving there officially and permanently. And that is weird to do at 50 because like friends, like like obviously learning, like if you move anywhere, you have to learn where's the new grocery store. things. Um, the waitress near me is way too small. I need to find them. <laughs> um, but then I heard Tories shop at Waitrose. It's like the conservative. So I'm like, maybe I need to find the liberal. Where is Trader Joe? <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, funny. so that for me is a crossroads. And so I've been thinking about like, okay, what is my most important thing when I move? And that is community. Like my family's obviously going to be in the U.S., not my husband, but my family's in the U S but like developing a community is the most important thing. And that means I can't be working all the time because I am not going to meet community on zoom. Like I need to like go human beings in real life with the people. So like, I don't know, find a bowling league, but volunteer more hobbies. (laughs) <laughs> more hobbies. So I really am practicing hobbies because hobbies are very like traumatic for me. I've, I'm better at not having hobbies and friends because then I don't have to lose them and get made fun of and all those things. So um, one of the reasons we picked Oxford is there's a huge autistic community in Oxford. Is there? Yeah. It's like the, one of the largest areas of study at Oxford University and a lot of people really? who study it are also autistic and there's lots of like adult autistic play dates and it is the place in Britain with the most pub trivia quiz although oh, I you like a bit of pub I, quiz I'm I'm studying British actually those are these are my reading assignments uh British history books so that I'm prepared for pub quiz but oh you're gonna have to yeah. come up here and quiz with us my husband is like quiz master I feel like my husband and your husband are gonna hit it off I feel like they need to hang out yeah exciting so yeah so this transition for me I definitely I love doing books I want to keep working with books but I've moved to doing more one-on-one less like my team still does certain things project management editing stuff like that design um but i'm working more closely with my authors in a way that like i can work with more or fewer people so that i have time to actually invest in building nice. a social there <laughs> which like i want to take that first 2 years and really be primarily focused on making a few really high quality friends so that's that wild to just be like saying and thinking about like thinking about but, the people we were like 15 years yeah. ago and what was important to us then and like fuck friends who needs friends who needs family who needs oxygen and food like yeah like- well what I would say is like my friends are my clients and people I partner with in business which is totally true but I keep thinking about like the holidays and dinner parties and like just me and Paul doing Christmas alone in Oxford. I mean, his family is in Bristol, but, but I'm like, 
I want to be able to have a dinner party and have at least 10 people to invite. Who are these people? That's not a day trip for and you're them. Not gonna have like young like kids on a, in school, so it's not going to be like a push button experience. I'm not going to right. I'm not going to meet people because of my kids, which is also how I met a lot of people. Like, and so yeah. So I'm super excited to focus building a community and building new friends and creating a new expat life. I really look forward to hearing about your culture shock as you move here because <laughs> I feel like you are so much more prepared than I was. First of all, you're already married to the Brit and I just met the Brit when I moved here. And second of all, you're very aware of British culture. I was not, but I was very naive. I just sort of felt like how different can it be if it's two English speaking countries and my one came from this one, right? Like I had absolutely no respect for the culture shock that would occur even just the first time I sat down with a menu and realized I didn't hadn't actually thought through the conversion between dollars to pounds and I had no idea what the money was like I just had no oh my god I when I was in Oxford I ordered grilled cheese I got halloumi (laughs) I was like grilled cheese did you get Welsh rarebit like what oh I do love me some Welsh rarebit though no, no, oh, I got it. like, well, yep, that is grilled cheese. Yep, that okay, happened. that is accurate. Yeah, I got you. Um, we'll have to do like a whole separate podcast around the American British stuff because it's so fun. But I like the number one tip I always say to people who are visiting me or moving here is just make sure you don't order American things here. Primarily <laughs> nachos. Never, ever, ever nachos. Never. Anywhere. It's never safe. Anything Mexican. Yes. Anything Mexican, for sure. But nachos in particular. Just no matter how good it sounds, don't do it. (laughs) Paul's last meal before he leaves the U.S. is always Mexican. Mm -hmm. And his first meal when he gets to England is Indian food. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I support these decisions. That is so accurate. Can't get good Mexican (laughs) here. Can't get good Indian there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I actually dated a guy who was half Indian. I never liked Indian food. And it was like his personal mission to like help me fall in love with the Indian cuisine. And it never happened. Like I just, I just did not like it. And everything we tried. No, 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 no. And then I came here and the first time I went out for a curry with Phil, I was like, what is this? This is crazy. And then I felt really bad and guilty. But yeah, it's different. It's so if you're different. listening to this and you're not in England, this is your sign. Go buy tickets. <laughs> yeah. It's even good in London. You can't get bad Indian food. In, it's in. so good. But do not eat Mexican food here. That is. Yeah, no, but do not eat the Mexican food. But yes, yeah, so that's the vision. I, I want to work until I don't feel like working. I feel like I'll work for at least 15 more years. And I want to do as many books as I want to do. I just took a book I'm super excited about. Like, I only work now with authors where I like want to spend months diving into their book topic. So I'm more selective. I'm working more one-on-one with people. I've like realigned my team and my products to fit with my style. And then the vision is much more about European travel and community and friends because at, there's, I don't have, this is going to sound very fucking morbid, but like, I don't have many Christmases left on the grid. Like <laughs> let's live 50 more years. Like 
I probably have fewer Christmases left than I have had. And I don't want to like spend them alone. I want to build a, you know, a rich life, but empty nest is a weird time. Kids off college. I don't want my life to be his life. I'm super excited to build a new life in England with my husband and we'll make a couple million dollars a year. And like, you know, we'll probably do 5 million this year, 40% profit. It's definitely the, yeah, it's not like the high flying life. Oh, actually though, exciting update. We used to fly private a lot and, um, we would pay for a pilot. Now my husband is in flight school. (gasps) So we back to flying private. We can fly to Lancashire. Yeah. So brilliant. Yes. Yeah. I'm excited about this. This is good. I feel like it's a, it feels like a crossroads. It feels like some of this is emptiness, some of this pandemic, some of this is international move. Some of this is autistic burnout. Maybe I'm lucky it all happened at once instead of being dragged out over a decade, but it's been a rough (laughs) two years, my sister. Sounds intense. Yeah. But also like, it sounds delightful in this like, it sounds like there is so much joy and there is so much excitement. And even just the things you're saying, like that used to scare the shit out of you or that you used to be plagued by are now exciting opportunities. You know, this, this idea of the loneliness that was, and now the primary focus being friendship, even though that's daunting because of neurodivergence and past bad experience and like, also it's just fucking hard. Let's be honest, moving to a new country where you don't know anybody, which is what I did. And trying to make friends as a grown-up is hard. Like that's right. Like on a good day with a winning personality and no neurodivergence, that's yeah. hard. <laughs> like right. So and then add complications. So yeah. Good for you. All right. The loneliness that was could be the podcast title. I, mm, I don't know. Good, that was right? pretty good. You had a moment there. <laughs> so yeah, coming up with it's this on. energy we've got together. Yeah. yeah, this little creator spark. Um <laughs> Okay, so the last thing I really want to dive into because, and we really like bonded on it early is this color conversation. So I'm obviously a color psychology consultant and we geeked out massively on color when we first started chatting. And I believe you're a fireside, right? You took the quiz, you're an autumn. Yeah. And we're both really into mustard yellow right now. It's my whole new website. It's your whole new wardrobe. Do you have, is that your signature color? Do you have a signature color right now? Have you had a signature color in the past? Yes. Mustard is definitely my signature color. It is everything. That's one of my recent book covers. Wait, where is it? There. Uh-huh. Um, so, like that was done to match it. This like blushy thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Is the compliment. So like, I don't have a mustard jacket on, but so I do a lot of mustard, but then I do this light pink and light gray with it mm-hmm. and then green. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the palette. Okay. And I, we've talked about this before, but I have had other signature colors and I will tell you, I don't know if this is bad or good, but it made my life really um, work, which is my brand colors were my closet. So mm-hmm. whenever I had a photo shoot. Mm -hmm. So my brand colors were basically, um, gold, like really metallic gold. I have a lot of shiny, shiny metallic gold in my closet. Lots of it, all the things. Um, so it was gold, it was maroon 
And it was like a very dark maroon and then charcoal gray Mm -hmm. and um, navy. Okay. And so that, and and we called it a Harry Potter kind of palette. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it felt like old castle. And I lived in a castle. Oh, that's right. I forgot about the castle. Yeah. So mahogany wood was almost the color of burgundy. Oh, this chair is from that palette. Mm So mahogany wood, which had like a reddish undertone to it, mm-hmm. very fireside, were painted in like twenty-four karat gold. Like the dental molding was in twenty-four karat gold, and then it was black wrought iron was everywhere, and so that palette of the black, gold, and maroon was my house. It was my closet. It was my website. When website matters, because I do zooms. So whatever I would wear would be videotaped and then it would go on the website. And when I would travel, I would pick one of those four colors as the main theme and then everything else would go around it. So that made it really easy with like shoes. Like I would either pick Navy or black, but I wouldn't pick both. Mm -hmm. So then I would know, am I bringing black shoes? Am I bringing Navy shoes? But I'm not going to bring both. So packing, and I was traveling 200 days of the year. So these things all seem not connected. And I know I might sound crazy. Not at all. Not for this group, girl. No. (laughs) So it was like, and of course my luggage also matched. Of course it did. So, but then it was, everything was so easy. If I was going to a photo shoot, I could choose from anything in my closet. If I was going on a trip, it was easy to do a capsule wardrobe. I can go away for two weeks with a roller board. Mm -hmm. Everything matched with everything. Everything's coordinated. Now, when I left the castle, I became fucking allergic to those colors. (laughs) Well, I could jump in as the consultant and say you went through a massive change and those colors no longer, the feelings associated with those colors no longer were aligned. So even just the red, that is that like driving action forward, like, and the yellow is happiness. It's just happiness. Yeah. So that shift is, you've already told us about that shift and it's so clear why that had to happen. And green is like peace and balance. It's like literally the opposite of that red. Yeah. So So I couldn't, I couldn't like even my furniture, like I have a really cool pied-a-terre in downtown DC and it's like, I can't wait to have you over. It's just like every single thing is perfect and it's all mustard, pale pink, light gray, and, um, a few green accents because I have like lots of plants instead mm-hmm. of work in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and those colors are like my transition of identity. Mm-hmm. So totally my closet completely flipped. And it's like, I still have, I have this jacket in that burgundy color and I even pull it out. I mean, it matches. It doesn't look bad with mustard, but yeah. it just same does color family. It doesn't make it. It doesn't, it doesn't make it. I end up in pale pink, green, yellow, and uh, gray. And so it's very, and then again, like I switched my luggage. I switched my, um, my makeup bags were metallic gold. They were like super cute. It was like a set of three. They were super cute. I, 
I bought that. I think my stylist bought them for me. There's nothing wrong with my makeup bags. Makeup bags are fine. They can be gold. It's not a thing. I got a gift from a friend. Not even, we certainly didn't have a color theory conversation. (laughs) Makeup bags with an A on them. So she'd gotten like monogram and it's um, like pink and green. They're like, I don't know, flowers or something, but they're tangled vines of pink and green, pink flowers, green leaves around my initials. And, you know, sometimes you get a gift like that. Like I didn't pick it out. They're probably not as high quality as the ones my stylist got. And I don't know if you're like me, you could just, if your makeup bags are fine, it could be two years at the back of your, I don't need a man. Yeah. Not an urgent need. That day. I just switched everything. I'm like, oh, it'd be so nice to have new makeup bags. And then suddenly I'm like, oh my God, they're fucking on brand. Like everything. So I changed my website. I changed my website colors because I'm like, oh, it's better if I show up and then everything matches. So yeah. And now, so I'll either do a mustard palette, especially if I'm doing like we did a a trip to New Orleans, which was going to be sort of outside shopping, music festivals, went to a football game. It was a very mustard palette. (laughs) Yeah. If I'm like, like, Worked really well. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But then if I'm doing like a nighttime thing, like lots of dinners or the theater or stuff like that, I usually tend to go like more towards the greens and blacks. Um, and then I'll accent it with light pink. So it's it's different, but it's very similar in that when I pack, I pick a color that's my main color for that trip. And then the belts, the scarves, the jewelry, makeup, any of those, they'll match with everything. Usually I'll do just like jeans or black pants, like some sort of basic plant that I can wear multiple times. Mm-hmm. And then I've just got combinations of tank top and jackets or sweaters that switch out really easily and they're all matchy. And most importantly, they all make me happy. Mm-hmm. And I know catch a cute picture. I'll be able to use it on my website or in social media or whatever. And I won't have to stress about it. I love this. I think this is my love language. I think the (laughs) is my love language. Like, oh, I feel every, every word that you just said is like, amen, sister. Like, yes, hundred percent. I got this from, um, my stylist who did a book with me, Lee Hayward. I don't know if you've ever met her. She's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things that she really helped me with is like, you should love everything in your closet. Just, just throw it out. If you don't love mm-hmm. it, you're not there. Just, just donate it. Do what Thank you, you need. Marie Kondo for the sparking joy as well. Like I love, I just love that. And I do, I do do that. Like I really, I have I'm really struggling with this one, but I went to Ireland this year and I got the most beautiful Aaron sweater and I'm always cold and I was freezing that day in Ireland and it kept me so warm and I loved it. That shit is scratchy as fuck. <laughs> it, I, today I wore it this morning. I like went outside. I had a cup of tea. I was wearing that sweater and I was like, mm, today is the last day of the sweater. It's so sad, isn't it? It's very sad. She's so cute. I Somebody's going to love her. It's not me. Yeah. 
scratchy makes me angry and then I <laughs> outbursts or do some stupid shit or I can't get stuff written. I was writing this morning and I was distracted by the scratchy. And so, you know what I did is I went on like some, like it's not Candy Crush, but some stupid online game. And I was like trying to write because I write every morning. I was trying to write and I was like, maybe I'll just play a game or two of Candy Crush. And then I'm on Candy Crush and I'm like, I'm on here because the sweater is scratchy. <laughs> Stimming because I need to sell th- this sweater has to go. <laughs> Gone by. You just it's so funny, me. isn't it? The simplest thing. Finished my daily writing, but it was I I cheated. I did a listicle this morning because my regular writing didn't come out. I'm like, I'm just gonna do a list. Make a list. 12 things you need to ask before you write your book. 12 <laughs> questions you need to answer before you write your book. And I wrote it in 15 minutes instead of an hour because the fucking sweater was scratchy. <laughs> it's very important, you guys. If so, like it's very matter. I feel it. I get it. Yeah. And the color piece is so interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like this is something that a, none of us ever talk about and B, then we feel a little bit weird when we do talk about it because we're like, is this weird? Am I weird that I do that? But actually realistically, the whole idea of a capsule wardrobe of having like, you know, two neutrals and two sort of pop colors that are within your brand personality type within your, you know, color palette is so extremely practical and the bit that I love that you talked about which I feel sad about for like the old version of me and everybody else who's still in that paradigm is this idea that you know like a capsule wardrobe has to be like black and white basically or black navy and white and those are not my colors I I can't I did do them for a long time and I was sad because I looked sad and I felt sad and I was sad gray black navy are not for me and I thought they were for me because I moved to England. That's all you can fucking buy. It's <laughs> a whole country of people like in those in your wardrobe out the door with all that color and in with the black, navy and gray. And and so I, I like that. I feel like this conversation around your particular colors, it kind of gives hope to this idea, you know, certainly what I believe in and, and teach and kind of finding your personality type and your colors and being able to create this sort of capsule wardrobe from your version of a neutral, which is not going to be black, gray, and navy for everybody, right? Like I've now adopted my neutrals are like a dirty white, like that's an ivory, not ever white, white, and like dark brown, which I never would have touched in a million years, but it looks so much better on me than black because it's warm. And, you know, starting to really like reinvent based on these rules that I'm like, oh, these are terrible colors. I don't want these at all. And now it's like, it's all I have. And it does feel really good to like know that everything in your anything in your closet can be matched. It's so easy to pack. Packing for Necker. Had I done that pre this part of my life, never ever in a million years would I have been able to shop or pack for that trip because I would have just been like, I'm so intimidated. So many skinny girls in one place. So many skinny girls, so many extremely fashionable women who I really look up to and admire. And like my roommate in particular is an absolute princess. Like she is beautiful and so stylish. And I was like, this is going to be awful. But because I know my colors, which has given me a tremendous amount of confidence and I knew it was all going to match. I was like, I love this. I know what to buy. I know what to pack. And even for the nights we did fancy dress, I was like, I am not diverting from my colors because I know 
either I will never wear this again and I'll be mad that I bought it or I'm going to hate it when I actually put it on just because I'm trying to buy it because I need a whatever it was sun moon cosmic child costume or whatever you know it's like it will be teal it will not be navy (laughs) right it does work yeah there that confidence piece also goes with the comfort thing I was saying it's like I it is so weird I've never thought of myself as stylish in any way rarely do I not get complimented on my outfit I, Mm -hmm. I cannot think of the last time I left my house and was not complimented on my outfit and it is not the outfit. Here's mm-hmm. the new. It's the like comfort. It's the clarity. Like I know what I'm wearing. I know why I'm wearing it. I have so much confidence and comfort in what I wear. And I think I could wear the same thing and feel like awkward and I won't get the compliments that I get. Yeah. Like, and I would yeah. add, it's probably also the color. Because there's actually research around if you're wearing colors that don't suit you, which then dulls down your personality, which then makes you sad. People definitely treat you differently when you're wearing black and you should be wearing peach. Um, Yep. And when you wear the peach, you know, all of a sudden you're lit up and people notice you and you smile more. And yeah, so it is like it's a real holistic thing, but it is it's kind of a joy, isn't it? Like it's really quite fun. I think, especially as someone who I like, I don't spend a lot of money on clothes. I don't think of myself as a fashion mm. player, not skinny, like in the Instagram model wearing bikini. So like, I'm like, oh, I'm good at this. And yeah. I have the same exact thing. Like who knew? <laughs> Feels like great. if I can be good at this, you can learn this. This is <laughs> So, all right, one more question and then we'll say goodbye because you've given me so much of your wonderful time already. And that is a classic that never dies. That sort of younger version of you, the 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 woman that you were 20 years ago, the woman who is you now, that space you were then, like, what's the big piece of advice? What's the what's the message you want her to know about? everything you know now about success, about happiness, about contentment. What's the big message? No pressure. (laughs) Yeah, right. I think what I would want to say to my younger self, the short version is trust your gut. The longer version of that is like, there were things that I knew, but they seemed wrong. So like there were people I didn't think treated me well, but I was like, it would be inappropriate based on power hierarchies for me to say that, or I know I have a weird personality, so I deserve this, Mm. but I like actually knew I didn't like, whether it's like dating or family or jobs, there were things I knew, but I definitely did not think I was old enough to know them or own that knowledge, but I, if I could have trusted my gut more, I know that like is kind of trite, but there's so much depth in the ways I doubted myself because I was autistic, because I was young, because I felt like I had a bad personality or I got a lot of criticism for my personality that I doubted myself. And I was so fucking right. Mm-hmm. Fucking knew that wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. So thanks for sharing yeah. that. And thanks for coming to sit here and uh, share your vision with us. 
Talk about color. For a cup of Yorkshire tea. Absolutely. Lancashire tea. No. <laughs> you have your own brand up there? Or is there- you. Actually, my husband got really annoyed because um, his father-in-law brought the wrong one. He said Lancashire. Father-in-law bought Yorkshire. Oh, dear. Um, so we're working through the Yorkshire team. The battle of the counties. And then I'll, <laughs> hopefully I'll be faster on my map by then. I'm at like two hours now. Paul's time is 36 minutes. So I'm in a, once I get my puzzle under 30 minutes, I will report back. Yes, please. I was so. just talking to my husband today about counties because A, it's always in pub quiz and B, I have no clue. I only know now where Lancashire is because I live here. <laughs> but I'm very, very impressed and I look forward to taking all of that British factoid in via osmosis when we actually get to meet up for that couple. Excellent. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thank you for having me as a guest. Uh, you bet. Thanks so much.